I always enjoy coming to Forest Town Church. I feel like I'm amongst friends um, and, uh, and extended family in the spiritual sense. And I uh, love Ant and Helen and, and their family. And uh, so it's great to be with you. Uh, what a glorious time of year, don't you think? I love, there's something about May, isn't there, where everything that has been closed up over winter suddenly sort of explodes out in colour. Every bush is aflame with colour at the moment. Isn't it glorious? Yes. Come on, we're Christians. We're meant to enjoy this world. <laughs> and uh, so no, that's great. And I think you've, uh, you've been doing a series, or you're partway through a series, looking, broadly speaking, at the Holy Spirit and His ministry in our lives. And I want to sort of come alongside that, not so much fit into it, but come alongside that with a message that um, I've entitled, you know, God is in the house. And it's really just highlighting the important truth that we corporately and individually, we are now the temple of God. We are the ones who, in some mysterious, glorious way, we are the ones who are hosting the presence of Almighty God on planet Earth. Heaven is His throne. (laughs) Who could possibly build a house for Him? And yet, in some amazing way, our bodies have become temples of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that an incredible truth? A truth that if we really believe it, if we really experience it, must affect the way that we live our lives. And that's really the dynamic that I want to bring today. I want to bring that by looking at the incident, well-known incident, where Jesus goes into what was the temple of God in Jerusalem, in that instance a physical building, and in quite a dramatic account, God's Son goes into God's house and confronts God's people with the way that they're living in the temple. And uh, this is therefore inevitably going to be quite a challenging message. It comes from John chapter 2. I want to read it to you and I want you just to try and listen to the full force of what Jesus says and does in this encounter with the temple and then we'll dive into it. Does that sound okay? John chapter 2. And um, he has just, this is important context, he has just been at a wedding where he celebrated the good things of life by turning water into wine so that the party could continue. That is one aspect of Jesus, right? Yes. And in, very significantly, John says, after this, he wants us to see what Jesus does immediately after that scene of joy, of celebrating what is good. After this, Jesus... Uh, went down to Capernaum, John chapter 2, verse 12, with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and in the temple courts he found men selling cattle and sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables and exchanging money. So he sees this farmyard of animals and this bureau de change of money, and this is his reaction. He made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables, and to those who sold doves, he shouted, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? Now his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign will you show us to prove that you have authority to do all of this? And Jesus replied, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, 
it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Are you going to build it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Amazing story, isn't it? God's son goes into God's house and it all kicks off. He makes a whip and he whips up the perfect storm by driving out large animals, turning over tables and squaring up to the religious leaders of his day. And I want to look at this, unpack this with three headings. Firstly, rethinking God's son and then relocating God's house and then finally restoring God's people. Because the ultimate truth that we're going to arrive at today is that because we are God's people, something of the challenge of this passage, because we are now his temple, something of the challenge, prophetic challenge of this passage comes straight at us today because God loves us and he wants to be uh, dwelling in our lives. Do I hear an amen to that? He loves us, he wants to dwell in our lives and therefore he comes with a cleansing agenda. So firstly, rethinking God's Son. I say this because the image of Jesus, I don't know if you can sort of imagine his face as he goes into the temple. What would it have looked like to see the face of Jesus as he drives out the animals, makes a whip and turns over the tables? I think on the next slide you can see an artist's impression. We don't know what his face looked like, but we'll click on a couple. You can see an artist's impression of what his face may have looked like a little bit. Oh, sorry, maybe we have clicked on a few. There we go. Imagine his face as he said, you know, how dare you turn my father's house into a, a market. I don't know if that is the Jesus that you imagine when you think of Jesus. And part of my point, therefore, is some of us may need to rethink Jesus. On the one hand, he is this good God who celebrates the good things of life, turning water into wine. He puts good things on the table and yet he's also the God who brings judgment on the things that are wrong in this world. He turns over the tables. <laughs> Isn't that ironic? He makes wine and then he makes a whip. <laughs> he, he puts wine on the table and then he turns over the tables, one immediately after the other. And John in his Gospel deliberately puts these two images of Jesus right next door to each other as if to say, you need to see both of these to comprehend Jesus Christ. Almost like an expert art collector might hand two, hang two contrasting portraits next to each other and we rather foolishly sort of say, so which is it then? <laughs> which is the real Jesus? Foolish because of course the answer is both. He is the God of love who celebrates the good things of life and the God of justice who comes to judge that which is evil and wrong in this world. And we need to bring both together by rethinking Jesus. Now the reason for both coming together is because if you have one without the other, you're left with something of a caricature rather than the real character of Jesus Christ. If you, for example, some people, perhaps because of our rather religious upbringing, maybe a school context or a family context where God was thought of as this harsh, severe, a God who, who, in, whose, whose primary business was to stop people enjoying themselves. You know, there is a version of Jesus, in other words, who would never make wine and celebrate the good things of life. 
Now, if your Jesus can't make wine and celebrate the good things of life, I suggest you need to rethink Jesus, because that's what he did, right? He's a good God, amen? If you go back a couple of pictures, you can see slides, you can see a picture here, which I found rather amusing. I don't know if you can see uh, those ladies, but it says, lips that touch liquor shall not touch ours. Um, if you can see those ladies, yeah, it is something of a relief if you can, uh, if you can see them. <laughs> Thank you, Clive. That was going to be my line, but I, I, we think alike. But anyway, you know, this Victorian Jesus is a caricature. <laughs> this approach to religion, which actually has caused so many to think that if I invited Jesus into my life, he would be a killjoy. Can I tell you, if you invite Jesus Christ into your life, he will create joy. He's the God who puts wine on the table, who celebrates the good things of life. If your Jesus can't make wine and celebrate, you need to rethink Jesus. But if, your same, if that same Jesus cannot also make a whip and judge that which is evil, you need to rethink Jesus. You see, there's two equal and opposite extremes here that we can fall into. We need to bring both together. There is a Victorian Jesus that would never make wine, but there's also a Hollywood Jesus that would never make a whip, that, that would never come with anger and judgment at that which is wrong. That also is a caricature. There is a, a Hollywood Jesus who sort of floats around, often wearing a white bathrobe, have you noticed, with a blue sash, like he's won a sort of beauty pageant or something like this. And, and he floats around as some kind of life coach offering pithy statements to help you improve your life. They're always PC, have you noticed? He's a politically correct Jesus, and we've so reduced him to some domesticated version that not only is he PC, but he's almost something of a PA. <laughs> he is your personal assistant Jesus. He will never say anything to offend you, he's just there to help you. No, no, I think the Jesus that came into the temple that day he causes us to have to rethink that approach to Jesus as well. He makes wine and he makes a whip. He's a God of love and a God of justice. As Paul writes to the Romans, Romans chapter 11, he says this phrase, a very important phrase, behold the goodness and the severity of God. In the person of Jesus Christ, in this instant in John's gospel, we see, behold, the goodness turning water into wine and the severity driving out evil of God. This is the real Jesus. This is the real deal. Amen? Now, when we see that face of anger, perhaps you can move back onto that slide, when we see in Jesus this intense zeal for what is wrong, that is actually bringing these two things together. It is because he is so loving that he gets so angry. They're not different things. They're not even two sides of a coin. It's because of his great love, it's because he's so good that he cannot tolerate things that are bad. It's because he's so loving that he gets so angry when he experiences the injustices of this world. This anger that we're witnessing in this passage is because he cares, right? <laughs> it's because he refuses to be apathetic, shrug his shoulders and just say, oh, that's just the way the world is. No, he's better than that. He's too good for that. You see, some of us may get angry, but it's a bad kind of anger. Some of us may get angry too often for the wrong reasons. 
you know the kind of anger I'm talking about, that kind of selfish anger? It's because something, if my pride has been hurt, my toes have been trodden on, it's an anger that is self-defensive. You know, that kind of anger is always destructive. It leaves us isolated from true relationships, it bullies and intimidates others, and when it comes into the domestic context especially, but work as well, it is absolutely toxic. I want to say if, if you've any of those anger issues today, if that's your challenge, if you know that you're hurting other people because of personal anger, I really want to encourage you today to get some help, to ask for some prayer, to receive counsel. That kind of anger needs to change. Some of us get angry too often for the wrong reasons, right? Others of us don't get angry enough for the right reasons. You see my point? There is a righteous anger. There is an anger that is arisen because not of a personal offense, but because of something of injustice in the world that must change. And that's what we're seeing in Jesus. We're seeing a good God who won't just walk past a temple scene, which as we'll see in a moment, was corrupt and unjust. He's a God who comes to cleanse and refine because he loves us. If there's any sense by the end of this morning of you feeling that God has brought you to a place almost of feeling a sense of guilt or of shame or of things that are wrong that need to change. You know, the reason he does that in our lives, what we call conviction, one of the great ministries of the Holy Spirit, why does he bring conviction? Because he loves us. Because he wants us to change for our good and for his glory. Amen? So we need to rethink God's son. He's a God who can make wine and celebrate the good things and make a whip and judge the bad things. Secondly, in this passage, we see Jesus relocating God's house, rethinking God's son, and then secondly, relocating God's house. All of this takes place in the very physical temple in Jerusalem. This building, again, you can see an image, was a vast complex and campus. This was not your local church. This was probably about five to six football pitches in size. An enormous campus. And on, at Passover, this time of the year, approximately 400,000 pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims, would have descended on Jerusalem with the epicenter of their interest being this building. As you came into the temple, many things we could say about it, but the big idea that you would have got is this. This is God's house. And as you came into the temple, if you were allowed access as a Jew, and then a bit further as a Jewish male, and then further still if you happened to be one of the priests, as you came through, the whole architecture and design was leading you through to see this is God's house, and in there, in the centre, is God's room <laughs> in his house, if you like. What was called the Holy of Holies. The most holy place. This extraordinary idea... God is in there. Consequently, there was a wall of curtain that separated any access into that place because that was God's, if you like, God's abode, God's place of residence. Now, the big idea then is this. This is God's house, and so as we come into God's house, as we dwell in God's house, if God is here we should act like it. Amen? <laughs> Surely, if this is God's house, if you really believe that he's here, 
you're going to act differently, speak differently, even think differently because of that most profound reality. But as Jesus comes in, as God's Son returns to God's house, what did he find? The other week I was, uh, I was away overnight from my family and uh, as I, we, they picked me up from the train station as I came in and we, we, we drove home and, and we arrived onto the drive and I was first in the front door and I turned the key and as I opened the front door I had that horrible feeling, you may have had it as I saw, that the place was trashed and I, I said to my wife, we've been burgled. And she walked past me and <laughs> chuckled and said, don't be so ridiculous, the kids have had some friends over. <laughs> I honestly thought, this is, this, we've been burgled. She's like, don't be ridiculous, I just haven't tidied up yet. Come on, parents, you must have had this scenario, right? The difference between being burgled and the children is fairly negligible at times, right? <laughs> They've trashed the place. <laughs> when God's son comes back to God's house, what he finds is that God's children have trashed the place. What was meant to be a centre of worship and prayer to God had become, the word Jesus uses is, how dare you turn my father's house into an emporium, literally. What we might say a shopping mall or a, a retail park. The whole place had become about commerce and consumerism. Jesus is angry at the lethal cocktail of religion and consumerism where people have turned religion into something that they can exploit for their own benefit. The pilgrims coming in know that they need to make sacrifices, but they'd very cleverly, the priests, concocted a new currency, a special temple currency. You can't buy the holy animals with your money. You're going to have to change that money into temple money, you know? We don't take euros here, mates, kind of approach. But of course, it's very clever because then you can set the exchange rate, hence the tables for changing money. Did you understand that? That's what Jesus turns over because what that represents is just a system to exploit God's people. Jesus then is angry at the way that his father's house, the temple that was meant to be all about the presence of God, had become about making money. And so he, he effectively says two things. Number one, God is leaving this place. He's shutting this down. Did you hear him? Destroy this temple. He prophesies doom over this physical building. And in 70 AD, that's exactly what happened, the Romans flattened this temple and it has never been rebuilt since. Every word that he speaks comes to pass. On the one hand, he says, he prophesies doom on this building, destroy this temple... But then he says this very interesting phrase, destroy this building and I will raise it again in three days. Now the Jews, of course, at the time did not understand what he meant. They knew that this building had taken 46 years to build and after all, none of us would trust the builder who says, I'll have the job done in three days, right? Don't take that quote. <laughs> but he wasn't referring to a physical building he was referring to what was going to transfer or change through his body. Notice that. The disciples later appreciated that it was his body that he was referring to. That somehow through the death of his body and the resurrection of his body, God was no longer going to be located in a physical building, but the presence of God, what was in and behind that curtain, the holiness of God, 
was coming out of that building, God is relocating. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he will no longer dwell in a building, but in the bodies of everybody who believes in his Son, Jesus Christ. Now therefore, as you put your faith in Jesus, something extraordinary takes place in a mysterious moment. The very presence of God that dwelt behind that curtain now comes to dwell within our souls and bodies. We are now the temples of the living God. God has relocated. As the Apostle Paul puts it, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? What an extraordinary thought. At the moment that Jesus Christ died, that curtain was torn in two. From top to bottom, it says, as if to say God did it. Now, sometimes we, we have thought of that event almost as if that is God giving access for us to come into his presence. And that is, on the one hand, true. But you could also think of it the other way. You could also reimagine that as God coming out of that building. The tearing open of that temple curtain was as if to say God will no longer be confined to this place He is now breaking out of this place to dwell in every person globally who puts their faith in his Son. What a wonderful relocation of God's presence. Which means that when you and I, both corporately, when we're here, and we experience the presence of God, we are, if you like, the other side of that curtain. We are in that place that no angel would dare to tread as we worship in the Holy of Holies. But it's not just true corporally, it's also true individually. As we go from this place on a Monday morning, on a Wednesday evening, we are a walking around Holy of Holies. Isn't that extraordinary? His Holy Presence dwelling in us. We are hosting the King of Kings. Now I find this extraordinary because, have you noticed when it comes to royalty, that like pilgrims, we often go to visit their houses, or house. Have you ever been to Buckingham Palace and stood outside those gates? We don't even allowed in to their house, right? But have you noticed, we go and see their house, they don't come to our house. Have you noticed this? I'm happy to go and visit their palace, they don't come to our terrace cottage or whatever it may be. But what's going on in this death and resurrection of Jesus is that these pilgrims who otherwise thought that the way that you meet God is by going up to his house in Jerusalem, the extraordinary truth is that the whole thing is turning around through Jesus. Now we don't go to his house. He is coming to our house. He dwells with us. His temple is not another pilgrimage for us. His temple is right where we're at today. Isn't that extraordinary? Now imagine... Imagine just for a moment that Her Majesty the Queen did decide to visit your house. On a particular day, you are going to be hosting the Queen. Now, I imagine if that was the case, a few thoughts would immediately go through your mind. Something around, we need to tidy the place up, (laughs) and we're going to do the very best stuff and service that we can possibly provide, right? Now, that's what I want to really land on today. Imagine now that we are hosting the King of Kings. That must affect the way that we live. Probably we need to tidy the place up, 
And probably we need to bring the very best service that we can give. We have a friend, actually, uh, called Sylvia. And her and her husband, to cut a long story short, they moved from London to Scotland. And um, they, they bought a house, not a particularly big house. They bought a house in Scotland, but it happened to be fairly close to a house that is quite large, you've probably heard of, called Balmoral, right? So they're, they're just down the road, relatively, down the lane, whatever. And as a result, at the annual Balmoral Ball, they got an invite to attend. So they obviously went along, and they, incredible moment, they actually met the Queen and the royal family. Well, this happened a couple of years running, and they actually got on remarkably well with the Queen and the royal family. Her husband was a glass blower, and the Queen apparently has a real uh, taking, liking for that. So anyway, to cut a long story short, after a few years of this connection, of her going to the Queen's house, Sylvia got a message to say that the Queen would, in fact, like to visit her house <laughs> with the family, <laughs> Philip and, and, and some of the children. Can you imagine that scenario? She didn't live in a particularly big house, they didn't have a lot of money, so she tidied the place up, <laughs> every nook and cranny. She made the best food that she could, she cooked herself, and then she told me this, and I love this, this idea. She was out in the garden, she said, and she was picking some flowers, because she realised they don't even have flowers on the table, we've got to get some flowers for the Queen. So she's out in the garden, shaking like a leaf and picking some flowers, and Sylvia's a Christian, and she says, and as clear as day, she heard the Holy Spirit speak to her. And the Holy Spirit spoke to her and said this, I am with you every day, and I am the King of Kings. It's only the Queen. <laughs> Isn't that a great one-liner by the Holy Spirit? <laughs> I'm with you every day, and I'm the King of Kings. It's only the Queen. What are you getting so worked up about? You host a far more important presence on a daily basis than Her Majesty the Queen. Now, that is not anything detrimental about Her Majesty the Queen, who I'm sure we all love. It is simply a statement about the King of Kings. The, the one who is greater than we are hosting on a daily basis. Now, if that is the case, taking the actions of Jesus as he goes into the temple as our model, if that is the case, we would want to at least affirm two things about our lives if we're hosting the King of Kings. Number one, this is a simple truth now, number one, it is time to clean up the house. If he lives with us, that's why this story is called the cleansing of the temple. <laughs> the spring clean of the temple. The getting out of the house the rubbish that should not ever have come in because the King of Kings is here. Amen? See, see, this is the point of the temple. It was meant to be the one place on earth where things were different. Because the Lord is here. The world may live as it chooses, but not here. This is God's house. Things are done differently here. All the consumerism and greed outside, okay, but not in God's house. And as Jesus comes in, then he comes in with an agenda of cleansing it's time to clean up this place because the world has swept into the temple and it's time to get it out. Now, I don't know about you, but as you begin to apply this to us, now we are the temple of God. Now it's not a building that needs to be cleaned up. It is hearts and lives. It is families. It is values that we hold. It's time to clean the house. How easy it is for stuff to creep into our lives from the world around us that robs us of the purity of living as the Holy of Holies. 
how easy it is for us who are meant to be the people on earth who are different, the people on earth who are meant to be the solution, how easy it is that we just become part of the same problem, like everyone else. I think this is why Jesus is so angry. God's people are living like everyone else. This is why he comes in. How dare you, he says. You can hear the anger there. How dare you live like this? You're God's temple. The world may be as it is, but not you. He bought you with his blood. He owns you as his bride. How dare you live like everyone else? We are called to be holy. I find this profoundly challenging myself. I imagine that challenge is now sweeping through the room. (laughs) Because this is a powerful dynamic, isn't it? If we are hosting the King of Kings, if the Queen did come to your home, I imagine you would be briefed on a certain royal etiquette that you must stick to, right? Especially if you're Australian, who don't tend to stick to these things as you should. Anyway, forget that. You remember remember the Australian Prime Minister? I think he got away with it in the end. But anyway, you don't hug the Queen, right? (laughs) If she was visiting your home, you'd be briefed on a certain spiritual etiquette. I imagine for the King of Kings, there is a certain spiritual etiquette. It's called holiness. We live a certain way because of who he is and he's hosted in our lives. Now, part of this is to break through on that simple issue, because of who we are in Christ, because we are His temple by the Holy Spirit, this simple and yet profound truth, therefore we don't live like everyone else. Just because everyone else values this or does that is no good reason for that to be the case for the people of God. We're different. Of course we are. Part of being a Christian is getting comfortable with the fact that we're not completely comfortable in this world. Because we've, there's something different about us. And every Christian has to break through on this issue. We're not going to be like everyone else and still be the people of God. I remember for myself, I mean, we still, I still have to fight this battle. But I remember for, for myself when I was 18... I remember fighting this battle, I think, for the really clear first time, having lived a fairly compromised teenage years. And then I, to cut a long story short, got serious about God, baptized in water, baptized in the Holy Spirit when I was about 17. And I remember on my 18th birthday, I had some of my mates around. I don't remember many things from, from that age, but this will never leave my memory because my mates came around for my birthday, 18th birthday, which is obviously quite important. But one of my friends had chosen a film to watch, and amongst other things that we did, we started to watch this film, and it quickly became apparent that this was not the kind of film that I should be watching, right? I mean, okay, that's what everyone else watches maybe on their 18th birthday, but I knew inside that tension of, on the one hand, but I'm different. I'm a Christian. I can't just be like everyone else, and yet, of course, that other side of you that says, oh, but I want to just be like everyone else. It's my 18th birthday, can't I just fit in? <laughs> I remember wrestling with this tension probably for too long before eventually I actually stood up and switched the film off and just said, guys, for reasons you probably can't understand, I don't want to watch this. Because I'm God's temple. I mean, I didn't say this bit now, but, but, because, but that was what was going on inside. I, I have the Holy Spirit dwelling in my heart. I can't just watch this stuff as if I'm like everybody else. And and it's not because I'm not allowed to. 
It's not for some awful motive like that. I'm not allowed to watch. No, no, I don't want to. I want to live for him. I'm not going to live at a lower level when I've been called to live at that higher level as the Holy of Holies, the temple of the living God. If he dwells with us, it's time to clean the house. Amen? I wonder if you are aware of things that have crept into your own personal life, your family life, and if you were to review that, review the way that we're living and the values that we hold and the influences we're allowing into our homes, review it on this basis that on a daily basis we're hosting the King of Kings and then say, so is there anything in the light of that that shouldn't be here? (laughs) I wonder what comes to mind. Jesus said to those selling pigeons, get these out of here. I wonder what he would say in our lives, get that stuff out of your life. Get it out of your home. Get it out of your family. Get it out of your heart. If you're hosting the King of Kings, it has no place amongst God's people. It's time to clean the house. It may be a relationship that you are in. It may be financial dealings that you've just gone along with. It may be an internet history of things that you've been viewing. It may just be the values that we've allowed our children to assume that what's important to us is money or having the nicest of this, or whatever it may be. Listen, there's nothing wrong with having money. There's nothing wrong with having the nicest of that, so long as that's not what really matters to us. We're God's people. That's what really matters to us. The most precious thing about our lives is we're hosting the King of Kings. Amen? It's time to clean the house. I wonder if you, like me, can think of one or two things, even right now, where you say, Lord, if you are here, if you're living in my life, I will not live like that any longer. Oh, please take that picture off. (laughs) That will need explaining. It's time to clean the house. I wonder what that is for, for us today. Secondly, though, it's time to serve the house. It's time to clean the house. And secondly, it's time to serve the house. You notice that Jesus, it says, zeal for God's house consumed him. Zeal for God's house consumed him. He came up against consumerism, people who'd come into the temple to profit from it. And in contrast to consumerism, zeal for God's house consumed him. You get the contrast. He is not there to try and get something out of it. He's come to this temple to try and put something into it. Worship, prayer, devotion to God. And again, in this, we get a lesson. If the queen was coming round at an individual level, we'd tidy the house up, right? And secondly, at a corporate level, we would want to serve with zeal, wouldn't we? If this is the house of God, if this church is one expression of the very temple of the presence of God, wouldn't we want to serve God's house with zeal? Not half-hearted, but wholehearted, the Lord is here. Notice the phrase that Jesus used, this is my father's house. Now I remember as a boy, and this does link to that picture, I remember as a boy, just to put an embarrassing photo up from my past, that's me helping my dad do some jobs. Now I don't know about you, but if you ever helped your dad do jobs, I love these moments. Anyone else? You you love these moments where you thought you were helping your dad. My father actually there is, is half smiling and half angry because I'd helped my dad by whacking a nail through a water pipe. I don't know if you can see that there. 
That's what we mean when, as children, we say, I'm helping Dad. We're actually just making the job take twice as long. <laughs> but they're great moments, these. Why? Because every boy, every daughter has a zeal to play a part, to feel like they're working with their father in their home. Sometimes my youngest boy, Toby, will come in after, play, after nursery, he's three, and he'll come in, and one of the ways when he interrupts me to try and get me to be interrupted, he'll say to me, Dad, can we do some jobs together? <laughs> Dad, can we do some jobs together? That sort of childlike zeal to serve in our Father's house. Paul writes to the Romans and says, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. See, again, it's possible, isn't it, for the attitude of consumerism, which I know we, we sort of look outside and we blame the world and consumerism and materialism, and of course that's true, but isn't it easy for that to creep in here as well? To creep into our hearts where we begin to think in the, way, in the mindset of how can I get the most and pay the least? And we come to contexts that are meant to be all about giving glory to God, and in our hearts we're thinking, you know, am I going to like the songs that we sing, or the worship, or the preacher, or the children, or whatever it may be. Now look, those are all good things. But we need to have a mindset that says, I am not a consumer in God's house. I am here to be zealously making a contribution to God's kingdom. Dad, can we do some jobs together? What can I do to serve my father's house. Again, I can actually remember a similar time of my life when, when a lot changed for me. I can remember the first time that I actually put something into the offering when it was passed round. Because up until that point in my life, I'd just passed that thing on as if to say, I'm not paying for this. <laughs> Other people can pay for this. And that's probably just a, a part of being a teenager. But you know, in my mind, I'm not paying. And I remember that first time of putting something in, and the reason I did was because God had got into my heart to say, actually, it's not for you any longer to just be a consumer. I put £10 in, I can remember the moment. For me, that was a big deal at that time. And it was my way of making a turn, making a change to say, I'm not going to be a consumer in God's house. Father, I want to make a contribution. Now, I'm not talking so much here about the money or the amount or the hours of time, I'm talking about the attitude that joins with Jesus Christ as he came into the temple, zeal for God's house consumed him. I just feel God saying again, let us be not consumers, but consumed with a zeal for God's church, for God's kingdom, for God's house. Amen? It's time to clean the house, and it's time to serve the house, for we are God's house. God is in the house. Amen. Amen. Let's respond to we and just uh, take a moment to do that. <clears throat> and just allow um, God to come and, and challenge us. I, it's a challenging message. I, I know that. I, it was a challenging day when Jesus came into the temple and it's a challenging message as we reflect on that. But remember, as we said at the start, the reason for that challenge is because he loves us. He wants us to enjoy the high calling and privilege of hosting the King of Kings. So with that in mind, let the challenge come. Father, let the ministry of your Holy Spirit come. The one who brings conviction into our hearts that we might change 
to be more like Jesus, that we might change the way that we live, that we might host the King of Kings. And firstly, Lord, for for that simple heading, it's time to clean the house. I pray, Lord, where that challenges us today, we want to choose to change. Where we hear your words, get these out of here. And we know there's something that's crept into our lives personally, our homes as a family, an attitude, a value. Today, Lord, we say we want that out because we want you in. Amen? We want that out because we want you in. Maybe that that's a particular... There's something particularly on your mind and and you just want to make a clear response today to say that. Just just with me, I'm standing, I just want to invite you to stand. If you say there's something in my life and I want to say, Lord, today I'm cleaning up the house in a particular area, would you just stand with me right now? And I want to give you an opportunity just to do that so we can pray. Just, Just stand, only if that's spoken to you, but if there's something in your life and you say, because of this message, because of the challenge of Jesus, after today I'm getting rid of that, or that attitude is going to stop, or I'm going to get help for that, because that is no longer going to be in my house. God is in this house. That stuff is not going to be here any longer. Father, thank you for those of us who have just stood to say we feel challenged to change, not out of a sense of oppressive guilt, but from the privilege that we are hosting the King of Kings. From that privilege of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, we say, Lord, because of that, we don't want that stuff there any longer. We don't want that attitude ruining the place. We don't want that that rubbish defiling the place. We clean the house today in Jesus' name that this may be a holy, pure place for your presence. So Lord, I pray over every person standing that they would make the make good on the pledge they're making by standing right now, that not just in this moment of prayer, but in a practical moment when we leave this place, if there's some files that need to be deleted, if there's some finances that need to be changed or adjusted, if there's a relationship that needs to be amended or even ended, we choose now, in Jesus' name, to take action to clean the house. It's a very practical thing that you are standing to commit to. Cleaning is practical. It involves doing something to get rid of something, to leave the place pure. And we're standing before you, Father, to do that. And I pray over every person standing especially right now that because of this choice, they would actually have that wonderful feeling that you get after you've done that horrible job of cleaning Isn't it a wonderful feeling when you just stand in the same space, but now it's fresh? Now it's cleansed. Now it feels good, because you knew you needed to do that. It's been on the mind for a while that that stuff needs to be sorted out, cleared out. When you've done it, doesn't it feel good? And Lord, I pray that by the Holy Spirit, you would just impart that great feeling of a new start to every heart that's standing right now. Thank you that this is a new day when the rubbish can go and we can live in the good of a clean house in the presence of God. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord.
Just feel that coming right now, that freshness, the freshness of a spring clean, the new atmosphere, the new aroma, the air is clear as we make that choice to clean the house. Thank you, Father. Live in the good of that. As, as Paul says, it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Now don't go back to that stuff any longer. In Jesus' name. Those standing, just, just remain standing, but it just may be that one or two others want to join, join us standing as we just respond to that second point. It's time to serve the house. If you just felt any consumerism has crept into your spiritual journey, you've become a bit passive, you've become almost uh, trying to find the thing that will give you what you need, and it's taken your mind a little bit off, Lord, what can I do to serve? And, and you want to stand just to say, Dad, can we do some jobs together? I want to get back on the, the serving team for the kingdom of God. Would you just stand with me as well? And I want to pray for you. If there's anyone where that's spoken to you, just stand with me. And let's just pray freshly for the same attitude as Christ. What does it say of him? Zeal for God's house consumed him. And Lord, I pray for every one of us standing right now, may a fresh zeal for your house consume us. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus, let apathy go, let complacency go, and may we just feel our hearts freshly on fire with a profound love for you, with a heart to serve you, that we wouldn't be so aware any longer of the cost, but of the privilege. Not a dreariness, but a joy in serving the Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you that we get to do this. We just stand to say thank you that we get to be here at all. It cost the blood of Jesus to bring us into this most holy place. And here, Father, we say it's our privilege to serve you. This is my Father's house. Thank you, Lord. Amen.